This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Julia Magana. Welcome back to EM Pulse. Today, we are going to hear from a provider who volunteered in Chico, California. If you're not familiar with the anatomy of California, Chico is close to where the campfire burned through Paradise, California. The campfire burned through more than 153,000 acres, 14,000 homes, more than 4,800 other buildings in Paradise, California, and sadly, it killed 85 people, all between November 8 and 25 of 2018. This is the deadliest and most destructive wildfire in California history, and it was very close to home because, again, Sacramento is very close to Chico, California, and a lot of our patients live in that area. Our patients were affected by it, and we were affected by it personally because of the smoke that came down through Chico and into Sacramento. So we're going to talk to a provider, Molly Hallweaver. Molly is a second-year emergency medicine resident with a passion for international medicine and for refugee medicine. She has worked in other austere locations, and I love working with Molly because she brings compassion and dedication to every single shift. At UC Davis, we received a call for providers to go out to Chico to help provide care in the shelters there. And Molly had only two days off around the Thanksgiving time period, but she used those two days to go volunteer in the shelters. And so you're going to hear from Molly what she saw, what she heard, what she smelled, what it felt like to be a provider caring for so many people who've lost their homes, who've lost their community. Like after any disaster, it's a total influx of a huge amount of volunteers and it's overwhelming the response, which is amazing. We were having kind of back and forth between the Red Cross. So I finally had a day off with very few days off. I just went up to Chico and went to the organization that was the group that was spearheading the the logistical coordination of all of the volunteers. And it was really incredible to go up and it was day 10 after the start of the fires. And there were still dozens of people lined up to volunteers. There was still just like a really amazing community outpouring of support. So I went up and they kind of fast-tracked you because you say you're a doctor and they get, they're really happy that you're there volunteering. So they kind of fast-tracked me through the volunteer process and I just had to get a notarized form. And then they connected me to the Department of Public Health and they immediately just sent me to a nearby shelter. The first day I went to a shelter in Chico and the shelter was run at a church, a pretty large, um, expansive campus of a church. And the shelter had about uh, 200 refugees. They were all people displaced from paradise. And that day was, um, it was, yeah, day 10 after the fire. So it was still really smoky, but it was right before the rains were about to come, thankfully. But it was like one of the more smoky days. So we'd been in Sacramento this whole week. I'd been working and even the, inside the hospital in Sacramento was smoky and everybody's eyes were affected. And those that have breathing problems obviously were, you know, the most affected. You know, I thought it was bad in Sacramento, but obviously it was much worse in Chico. So it was still really, really smoky up there. And of course, all the refugees have all of their whatever belongings they had, whether it was in their car or whatever they had in them. Everything smells very smoky also. One of the things that sticks out to me most about this shelter and then the other shelter I ended up going to in Oroville was they both had, immediately when you walked in, a huge bulletin board with a missing persons list. And it just was 
really heartbreaking to see the photos of, you know, people's loved ones up on the bulletin board that were still missing. And that's just a really hard thing not to have closure when you lose someone. And it's a very traumatic experience. Yeah, that's absolutely huge. Molly, how were they planning for the medical needs of these evacuees? Yeah, so at each shelter, there was just a wing basically dedicated to the medical unit. And there's a little triage station with tons of nursing volunteers. And there was a pharmacist at one. And there was a couple of nurse practitioners and PAs at another. And they had an isolation unit because there was a norovirus <laughs> outbreak at a couple of them. But they were, both of the facilities were doing a really excellent job of containment. I think they just had a low threshold for like anybody with symptoms got put into the isolation room. So by the time I was there, there were only a few people in the isolation room, which was pretty impressive considering the like number of people around and the sharing of food and whatnot. So they had a little isolation room and then they had a triage center and then they had this little medical room that was a pretty sweet urgent care that they had set up where they had a mini pharmacy. There were whatever you needed for wound care, whatever you needed for over-the-counter meds, so Tylenol, ibuprofen, pain meds, Zofran. And then they even had blood pressure medicines, heart medicines for those that people that were, had been out of their medications since they lost their home and hadn't been able to see a doctor since their you know entire town was also destroyed during this. They even had medicine. They had a Depico and Phenytoin at one, and one person was out of Keppra, and they were asking if I could start them on another anti-seizure medicine, and I said no. <laughs> but they had a pretty like wide scope of medicines you could offer people. They had breathing treatments. They had a little section of the room that was just dedicated to people who came in and got a nebulizer treatment every day, because those COPDers, the people with severe COPD, definitely were very affected by it and needed more frequent nebulizer treatments than they usually do. So they came in and had their nebulizer treatment. We took care of just some local or some ulcers that people have chronically. It was a lot of chronic things that have been exacerbated by the fact that people were displaced. I felt really humbled and, you know, honored to be able to go up there. And they were all mostly older, older population that were there, really vulnerable. And it was a really nice experience for me as a resident also, because as a resident, we are um, pushed just to see as many patients as we can. And we, you know, we're trying to move patients through the ED, figure out who's sick, who's not sick and find a disposition for them. And this was much more, I got to just sit and have a conversation with people and they got to tell me about how they were doing and what they were struggling with. So that was really nice to kind of have that human connection again with this population. And I definitely heard some really sad stories that people were really open about and willing to share. Um, one person, one older gentleman who I took care of talked about his, how his dog saved his life and how they started barking when he was in the house that was on fire. And he talked about how he got out and a lot of people had like incredible connections to their pets. And like, that was the, their one thing that was saved and they were so happy that they had their pets with them. Another woman who I had just gotten, like all she wanted were, she has urinary incontinence and she just needed some Depends. And so I got her, you know, a bag full of adult diapers and she was so thankful. And then she started talking to me about how her mom, she had lost her mom in the fire and her mom was just up the hill from her and her mom had called her, but she like couldn't get up the the road because everything was blocked. So it was just these like incredibly heartbreaking stories and everybody was, you know, dealing with it in their own way, but everybody seemed so resilient and strong and it was just a really a testament to the human human will. Yeah, that's amazing. It sounds like it was fairly well organized. I assume there had to be some kind of documentation for the treatments that you were dispensing. How did that part work? 
documentation was amazing. I wish that we could do documentation like that here. It was just a paper piece of paper and I wrote down what they what they said and what I did and that's it. And it was great. But I did write down like what meds we gave them. We had a list that showed us what we took from the mini pharmacy each day, which I don't know who was keeping track of that out of the huge bottle of Tylenol accounting at the end of the day, if it was accounted for, but we did it and we felt good about doing it. It sounds like there was a lot of medical needs that needed to be taken care of, but also quite a bit of psychological or psychosocial needs that needed to be met. Did you find one was more than the other? I think it was a little bit of both. There certainly were medical needs, but I think a lot of it was that people were traumatized, depressed, you know, in this terrible social situation with, you know, lack of resources. And yeah, I think it was an intersection of both. When I volunteered in a shelter in the past, I found there was a ton of people there and their needs did not stop when it was bedtime. How do they manage the medical needs 24-7? They had nurses and sometimes physicians there 24-7. There was someone medical there at all times, which was good. And they had just tons of volunteers just through the church and through the organization that I went through and through um, CalMed, which I think is through the Army, had a lot of, uh, dispatched a lot of people as well. You know, a few things really stuck out to me. One was the image of walking up to that missing persons list. I mean, at one point, more than 1,000 people were missing. Fortunately, now it's down to about 11 on December 3. But that list just makes me shudder. The other thing that stuck out to me was the outpouring of volunteers, both medical and non-medical, who came to help out this wounded but so strong community. The third thing that strikes me is that it was not acute care that these souls needed. Molly wasn't treating burns and injuries in those days. She was treating acute exacerbations of chronic needs. The needs were things like depends, medications, and maybe most importantly, a sympathetic ear to talk to about what was going on. There is healing power in sitting next to someone during these moments. And I hope that in the future, like Molly, I can be there for my community. 